Hey everyone, it's Daisha. So, how you doing? Um, I'm gonna be honest with you. Stuff in Daisha Land, it's pretty weird right now. For example, I'm recording this on my bedroom floor with some clothes flung over my head and uh, and a microphone. And the thing is that the clothes don't even have anything to do with recording this. Okay, I'm just kidding. They actually help with the sound quality, but it really is a weird time where a lot of things feel just sort of up in the air for all of us. And that makes me really grateful for this podcast, for you guys, and for the lessons that I get to learn from our amazing guests on the show. Speaking of lessons, I know a lot of you out there are using this time in quarantine to get your learn on about classical music. So if there's something specific you want to learn on Classical Classroom... You should email us about it. Our email address is classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. Is there a composer you want to know about? An instrument that you want to know about? Some weird theory thing you want to know about? Let us know. Classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, also, I'm trying to be better at social media. So if you want to give us a holler on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, do it. As for today's lesson, uh, we're about to learn about ambient music with composer Michael Whalen. At first I thought, is this really classical music related? But it turns out that it is. It actually has this really interesting history with roots in German classical music and like circuits and Brian Eno who collaborated with David Bowie. It's a whole thing. Uh, plus, the music is really meditative and chill, which I think we could all use a little bit of right now. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Okay, I'm going to quit yapping. Here we go. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> The idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And then he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. How to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Michael Whalen. Michael is a two-time Emmy Award winner. He's a BMI Award winner, a Grammy-nominated composer and music supervisor. He's written music for more TV and film scores, commercials, and video games than you can shake a stick at, whatever that <laughs> means. Uh, he's just released an album of ambient music called Sacred Spaces. Michael, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you so much for having me today. So, um, Michael, I have to say that I uh, checked out your website, um, which there is this super cool photo of you in your home studio, and uh, I, I kind of have home studio envy. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and actually, and, and actually, I'm in the center of that room right now because this is where I spend 
12 hours a day during the pandemic. So here I am. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. how many keyboards would you say you've got in that room? <sighs> Deja, Deja, Deja. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, I have 14 keyboards. Holy moly. And that's not the ones I have in storage because in my storage little room, because this is New York City and everyone has storage, um, in my little storage room in the basement, I probably have three or four more. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. It's like, it's this, What if you guys should go to his website, it's just michaelwhalen.com, right? That's it. Uh, yeah, and 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 right there on the homepage is this really great sort of fisheye lens kind of photo to to like fit everything in, I guess. And Michael is just in the middle of this giant circle of super cool keyboards. Yeah, um, I, I I saw I saw a picture of Vangelis from like nineteen eighty one, eighty two. I think he was just working on the score to Blade Runner, and I was like, I want that, whatever that is, give me that. <laughs> so, so it's just, awesome. yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you've, you've, yeah, it's super cool. Um, what, well, so, so I want to talk today with you first about what ambient music is. You, you just mentioned Vangelis who did the, the music for Blade Runner. Right. Um, tell me a little bit more about ambient music and Anything you can about the, the so, history of it and who's part so of it. So you you don't know anything about ambient music. So am I? So I'm really talking to a newbie, an ambient music newbie. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I am like cool. a brand newbie. I mean, like the the most that I know are like sort of the classical music crossover people. Like I think of John Luther Adams or Philip Glass, who I think could be construed as yeah. sort of ambient so, music. Yeah, that's that's more minimalistic and that's more on the classical side of things. So mm. ambient music was invented in the 60s and early 70s and it came sort of out of a long tradition of German music. So you got to yeah. go you got to go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s where like a lot of this technology was being worked on and a lot of this pioneering work was happening and they were like, okay, so what can these circuits and things do? And so mm -hmm. essentially what ambient music is out to do is create an environment. So yeah. it's not it's not about creating a piece of music necessarily. It's really about creating an environment. And the I, I would say the... The most famous ambient album in sort of the classical sense of ambient music is, a, is an album by um, British producer and musician Brian Eno. He did an album in 1978 called Music for Airports. Yes, I've actually heard that. That is the seminal album like everybody points at that and says okay that's the moment where ambient music basically became ambient music and there was music before that like there was people like Steve Hillage doing stuff and there was there was a few other people doing things but ambient music in its sort of 
uh, sort of purest form became that on that album because what Brian was actually out to do was to create an environment for an airport, literally. And so it's you're not walking through the airport like singing a, a happy tune. It's literally like it's the frequencies are literally there to block out certain things and to create a feeling of something. Yeah, so what I know of Brian Eno is the album uh, Here Come the Warm Jets. Yeah. Which is a, a very glam punk kind of album. And uh, it's very Bowie-esque. In fact, he worked with Bowie, I think. That's the other side of Brian, you know? Like, remember, Brian Eno also produces U2 and Coldplay and a few other people. So, like, so Brian has a, has a huge sort of repertoire of things that he does, but as a ambient person, a person messing with electronics and processing, I mean, Brian is without peer because he because he really started an entire vocabulary of sound that we are still mining today. There are people right now making drones and loops and doing all that stuff because, you know, of what Brian did. So, you know, it's clearly really pivotal in the ambient music genre but his music that i know of i think even music for airports wasn't he using a lot of real instruments i mean what were the early people who made ambient music doing like what were they using a lot of that early music wasn't created with tonal like 12 tone keyboard stuff like they were literally like just sort of dialing stuff up like with like analog oscillators and they were like oh okay I like the sound of that okay and I like the sound of this and so a lot of their music was sort of odd sounding because it didn't really work inside of that Western 12-tone thing. And then it was Brian with Music for Airports and a few other people who began to give it sort of like, okay, well, let's let's make this all kind of work inside of like, you know, the way our keyboards work. But a lot of traditional people, including me, when dealing with ambient music, is I like painting outside of the normal 12-tones. I like doing that because I think what it does is that it sort of enhances the melodic, the normal sort of melodic stuff and sets it off and then gives the music, I think, a lot of sort of depth and color. So you've you've sort of mentioned a couple of times composers from the early phases of ambient music. Who specifically are we talking about? Well, I mean, you know, you could talk about, you know, Stockhausen and you could talk about there's a whole there's a whole like sort of lineage of these people who were classical composers who were also playing with electronics and there was a a whole process in the 1950s and 60s called music concrete and so the they were taking bits and pieces of acoustic sound and electronic sound and process sound and putting it on reel-to-reel tape decks and editing it together and creating these incredible sort of montages of sound And 
And so music concrete, uh, ambient music, the development of the synthesizers, because, you know, in 1964, you had Bob Moog create the first commercially released synthesizer. So all of these things sort of sort of sort of smashed together and sort of created an environment where they were like, okay. Now, what are we going to do with this? Like, where where can these instruments go? And people started playing with sort of the outside parts of it. You had people like Wendy Carlos doing switched on Bach on a Moog synthesizer saying, okay, well, here is a very interesting way to apply this modular synthesizer towards this music that's 400 years old. And then you had other people like Brian Eno and a whole bunch of people like getting Moog synthesizers and saying, let's go create something we've never heard before. Okay, let's take a little break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll get back to it. This episode of Classical Classroom is sponsored by Maestro Classics. They're the creators of Stories and Music, which is this recorded series that they made for kids and families. It's won more than 50 awards, not to mention general adoration from the people who listen to it. It features the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and it takes those musical stories and it, and it like brings them to life. It's one of those things where kids learn while they're having fun, without actually knowing that they're learning. And there's an activity book that goes along with it. It's a whole thing. Maestro Classics just announced a brand new recording in this series called Bach and the Organ. It's all about J.S. Bach, who you may have heard of on this very show, and it tells the story of his life while talking about the pipe organ, which... P.S. back in the day was the most advanced mechanical instrument that had ever existed. And you can learn more about this album and the rest of the series at maestroclassics.com. And, wait for it, you can also save 17% off of your order by using coupon code CLASSROOM. Yay! Have you heard of Encoda? No? Well, settle in. I have a story to tell you. Once upon a time, musicians used paper sheet music. Paper was this stuff made out of trees. You'd have to go to a sheet music store to buy the sheet music, and they only accepted coins as payment. In order to prove that you were worthy of the sheet music, you'd have to perform for the proprietor who would deem your performance worthy or not and decide whether you got the sheet music. But then came the future, and the service called Encoda. You just download the app, and then, kind of like Spotify or Netflix, you pay a monthly subscription fee. And for that fee, you get access to tens of thousands of titles and millions of pages of music. And no more paying in coins and performing for the proprietor. Bonus. Uh, so download your free trial of Encoda. That's N-K-O-D-A from your app store today. And uh, you're welcome. And now, back to my conversation with composer Michael Whalen. Your musical evolution, did you start with ambient music or did... No, 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 I, I didn't start with ambient music. So so he, he, here's the thing. This is a story of a pathetic five-year-old child <laughs> and, and, and his mean older brother, my brother Chris, is seven years older than me. I love him very much. He's great. Anyway, so, and it was the 70s and so everybody had a stereo. So Chris had a very big stereo because he was older than me and he would be listening to Prague music all the time. Mm. Yes, Genesis, Emerson, like Palmer, like, Constantly, and I'd be constantly like sort of outside his door, going, "Chris, let me in, let me, let me hear this." He'd be like, "Mike, get away! I have my friends here, whatever." <laughs> so my, so my first experience with hearing 
really anything outside of like the music that I was sort of like listening to as like a little kid was through the door of my brother's bedroom. Mm-hmm. And so, and he was listening to like some of the coolest stuff ever. And so like, I am still a prog rock guy because of my brother. I am still somebody who loves ambient music because the very first time I ever heard you know, Brian Eno was with my brother. Yeah. The very first time I ever heard Steve Hillage and and these guys who were trying to combine rock music and ambient music was with my brother. So, you know, I I, I credit my brother with getting me into that stuff very early, but the thing that I've always been led by and one of the reasons why I am not cited as like an ambient artist is because my music has too much melody to it. It has too much structure to mm, yeah. it. So while I, so while on Sacred Spaces and some of my other electronic records, I might use ambient techniques to create sound. I, you know what? I, I still love melody too much. I still love like the idea of harmony that's going to change and something that's like going to sort of recontextualize recontextualize the melody that you're, you're you're hearing. So so to me I like the idea of playing with ambient sounds, even non-tonal sounds, but give me a melody as well, give me some sounds that are really fresh, give me a sort of a new approach and then I'm going to stir it all together and out it comes. Well, so and how has that you have done so much work in in TV and film? Yeah. How how did those two things work in that music? Because I know, I know you've done a lot of albums of just solo work and and other work that's like outside of that world. But how does how do those things? How does your sort of knowledge of that kind of music, of ambient music and of melody, play into when you're doing a score for TV or film? I mean, honestly, it works great. Ambient music for like a dramatic thriller or even a horror movie works great Mm -hmm. because what it does, it helps to sort of suspend time. And because the music's not necessarily tipping its hand on where it's going to go, it can create a lot of tension if you use it right. So uh, you hear a lot of composers use those kind of techniques, especially these days. Like, you know, like, you know, I was just watching Homeland the other day and like Sean Callery, who's a wonderful uh, television composer. He uses a lot of that looping ambient stuff as tension before he gets to the big action stuff. So it's now become a technique in scoring rather than sort of a whole genre unto itself. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because so much of, of, of film and TV music is sort of about that, like painting a mood, painting, painting, a the atmosphere, the sort of emotional atmosphere of what's going on. That's right. So yeah, I can see those That's right. working hand in hand. Well, so what about sacred spaces, your new album? I, I was reading up on it and, According to the internets, at least, um, this this album has been ten years in the making. Like, why ten years? Yeah, well, it started as a classical project, and I, you know, I had this idea of. 10 years ago, like, you know, Sacred Spaces was going to be my search for God and I was going to write a string orchestra piece, maybe a string symphony. And it had like all of these sort of huge ponderous ideas. Mm -hmm. And I got 
sort of through the first movement and then I ran out of gas because it was just like it was just like too ego driven. It was like mm. like it was it was sort of gross. But then <laughs> but I wrote a but I wrote some very cool melodic material, but then I put it on a shelf for a long time. And then about two and a half years ago, my wife and I moved from one apartment to another and I started looking at the music and I was like, wow, this is nice. Well maybe I should, you know, think about what I want to do with this and let's take it out of the context of a classical thing. What if we made it into an electronic project and what if I made it much more accessible for people so instead of it being sort of like a huge sort of extended work it could be single songs Mm, and what if what if we sort of dispense with the whole idea of a search for God and what if sacred spaces what if the idea of that could have more of a spiritual sense than a religious sense because I mean the last thing I want to do is like have a religious record and start proselytizing to anybody so please so 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 sacred spaces the idea behind it is at any moment in your life any place anyone anything can be sacred to you Mm -hmm. and essentially like who and what is sacred to you. So I'm 54 years old. I've had a very successful career in music and I'm very grateful for my life. And I think what Sacred Spaces is at the end of the day is about gratitude. It's about expressing gratitude and about making choices about who and what is sacred to me and what is not. Like basically, what am I taking with me and what am I not taking with me? Yeah. If ambient music and if, if, if that's what this album could be called I, th- I think it seems very very much in that vein at least to my completely untrained ears what spaces are you painting I- I'd love it if you could just like I don't know pick a couple of tracks and talk to me about what you had in mind when you were creating them sure sure I mean so the first track I want to talk about is Ordinary Miracles The idea behind it is at any moment in your life, there's a miracle around it if you want to see it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Albert Einstein has this great quote. It's like, either you can live your life like nothing is a miracle or everything's a miracle. <laughs> so I've de- I decided that I want to live my life like everything is a miracle. Like anything that we're doing is a miracle and the music is very positive. It has like a lot of motion to it. I think this track has three or four hundred tracks to it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot wow. of things happening to it on under the surface. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to it, it seems sort of apparently kind of simple. Like it's got like some simple stuff, but to build those textures and to have them be the way they are it took a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And to have it feel so sort of organic also took a lot of time. But you know. I was really led by this idea of the ordinary miracle. I love this, you know, like this idea that and anything that you want to see as a miracle could be that way. And so like the, the track even has like a little magic to it. So I like that. Yeah, I love that idea, by the way. That, I mean, that's such, yeah. a, that's such a fantastic quote that, that, that it can be either miraculous or not miraculous, depending on how you choose to see it. Yeah, Albert Einstein, you know, for people who don't know this, is a quote machine. He has he has three he has three or four quotes that just like kill me and that's one of them. So Yeah.
Um, uh, one of the other tracks is A Thousand Paper Cranes. So that is literally about an experience I had going to Japan, going to Hiroshima, going to the Peace Museum, mm-hmm. and being completely blown away by because I was I thought that going there was going to be like going to like the Holocaust Museum or like the Apartheid Museum yeah. and and um, um, South Africa, which I've gone to. I thought it was going to be like this really like whoa heavy experience. And what it turned out to be was hundreds and hundreds of people, all of these colorful uh, paper cranes all over the place, joy, music, and I was just like. Guys, what's happening here? And so in the face of this incredible tragedy, the atomic bomb and the hundreds of thousands of people who killed, what I was hit by was forgiveness and joy and creating the future. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. And so so this piece is uh, musically, it's a combination of two things. I took a lot of instruments, Asian metallic instruments, gamelons, metallophones, all kinds of different things, and played them and threw them threw them into the computer. And then I built a couple of hundred sounds, electronic sounds, to sort of play off of it. So it's acoustic instruments sort of up against a lot of electronic sound. This is one of my favorite tracks on the entire album. It's very poignant. It has like a like a very sort of nice sort of emotional uh, payoff. But it it's also a very 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 delicate piece because one of the things that I just I, I was blown away about with, in in my experience in Japan was just like people had no. There was no guile to them. There was no darkness mm-hmm. about any of this stuff. They were so happy that I was American and that I was there. <laughs> and That's so, nice. and so it's like, yeah. And so I was like, you know, I, I was trying to imagine Americans, you know, operating on that level of forgiveness. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And so, you know, so like one of the things that you know that I've been exposed to was a definition of forgiveness where it's literally about letting go of whatever you have between you and somebody else such that it floats away and disappears. And so like that, that I like, so for the first time in my life, I really had the experience of like forgiveness on that level. It was profound. It like, it changed my life. Yeah. I was drawn to the track um, when I was listening to the album um, because a friend of mine, uh, his, his, well, at the time it was his fiance. She was having surgery. She had, um, uh, something going on with her heart and while he was spending all of this time uh, in the hospital with her uh, he was doing he was making paper cranes he made a thousand tiny paper cranes for her because there's a yep. whole mythology around that that's right Japan. what I, I can't remember exactly what the myth is okay so the myth is if you make a thousand paper cranes any wish will be granted to you ah yeah so there's a whole story about this little Japanese girl who was uh, a victim of the atomic bomb, but she didn't die right away. Yeah. And so so people were basically making paper cranes, and she was saying, I want there to be no more atomic bombs in the world. Yeah. 
So she was basically like wishing for an atomic free world. And she became like this international figure. And eventually, you know, the poor thing, she, she finally died. But like the legacy that she created around it lives on. And so there in the middle of the, uh, the peace park there, there's a huge statue of her. Wow. It's beautiful. And, and so, um, you know, so this idea, you know, of, of the paper cranes and how it's connected directly to what happened in Hiroshima, it's just, it, it's just amazing. Yeah, that is such a beautiful, a beautiful concept. Um, and, and I, yeah, I, and I also just love the, the title. Um, and I, and mm. I, the, the sounds that you've got in that piece too, it just really, I don't know, maybe it's because I knew a little bit of something about, about that idea before I was listening, but I could really hear that in the music for sure. Wow. Cool. That's great. I, cause I mean, I, I think, I think I tried to have it both ways. Like if you know a little bit about it, it should help sort of help contextualize what you do know. Mm -hmm. And if you know nothing about it, there needs to be enough room in the piece where somebody who doesn't know anything can find themselves and enjoy the piece. That seems to be like what ambient music has to offer too. And it's interesting that you've put this album out now when everybody is in the midst of this whole pandemic quarantine situation. Um, I would love to say that I'm a genius <laughs> and that I knew that there was going to be a pandemic. You know, there's going to be a pandemic and here it comes. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I mean, honestly, the record came out on March 6th uh -huh. and uh, a week and a half later, all of the self-isolating orders came down yeah. and the entire world changed. And I was like, uh, wow. So the, the, the record has really found an audience with a lot of people at home who have found a lot of peace. Um, they have, they tell me all the time how they feel like the music helps them like deal with their anxiety. It, it helps people like, you know, uh, go on like little staycations. They listen to the album from beginning to end and they go like on a little journey, which is fantastic. But, but more than anything, what I really want the music to be for people is an oasis. Yeah. Like, and you get to decide what that oasis is. It's like whatever you need it to be. Like you want to go escape into it because, you know, you're sick of looking at everyone in your house. <laughs> Fine. But but if you want it to be something else, it should be that as well. Because I think, I think the minute music leaves an artist's hands and goes out into the world, I think whatever you bring to it mm. is just as valid as whatever thought I had that sort of initiated, inspired its creation. Yeah. So I, I, I think, like, because I hear from people all the time about, like, what they what they hear and see and feel from the music, and that is just as valid as any story that I have about what inspired the music. Yeah. And to me, and, it's, and me, to me in a lot of ways, that experience is actually sometimes more valid because, you know, now people are, like, bringing it into their own lives and they're making it part of, you know, their whole experience and, and who they're with. Well, I think that's like that's something that I hear classical musicians talk about a lot on this show is, um, you know, when they're playing a particular piece of classical music, their their connection to it is this sort of story that they've invented in their own minds, and that sort of because we're such narrative little creatures, you know, and 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 mm. that narrative that they've created for themselves kind of creates this personal connection to the music and I, I feel like ambient music and the music on this album really lends itself to that because you get so much 
just like brain space, like the, you know, you're not being sort of told by anyone what yeah. to think about the music. It's, you have all of this room as a listener. Definitely. To, to make it your own. Definitely. Yeah. And that's a and that and that's a great context. It's like you have a lot of room, yeah, and you've got a lot of room to like roam around and whatever. The other thing also is, and one of the things that you know I I you know I I keep talking about is this idea that like ambient music isn't necessarily a genre. It's not like hip hop or whatever. It's like to me, it's more of a catch all phrase that sort of describes kind of a whole universe of music, which is borrowing on a lot of things. Yeah. But I think, but I think, gives people that permission and that space that you're talking about. Well, Michael Whalen, I want to congratulate you on the new album and thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been uh, highly educational. I appreciate it. Oh well, but but it's the classical classroom. Come on, it has to be educational. <laughs> and and th- and and thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, this has been great, Michael. Take care. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to Classical Classroom Show, where you can find all of our past shows, social media links, and even make a financial gift to the show. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Subscribe to, rate, and review us wherever you listen. And don't forget, if you have a lesson idea, hit us up at classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. Thanks to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM, where the sourdough starter is looking really good. Thanks to the birthplace of Classical Classroom, Houston Public Media. Thanks to the official virtual dive bar of Classroom, Rick's Roadhouse, providing surly service and dingy atmosphere without the grime or the drinks. Thanks to Michael Whalen for being on the show today. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.